Presented by RomulusIT.com, offering remote support for common computer problems. Landry.audio, listen, like, and subscribe. Today, I'm speaking with Mark Jell, who you will find as a contributing columnist in our business title, The Australian Business Executive. Mark has worked in and advised CEOs, boards, and heads of state for almost 40 years. He has run strategy, policy, and stakeholder management teams in government in some of Australia's top 50 publicly listed global corporations. Schooled in the application of property rights, Mark is a believer in freedom of speech and expression as the cornerstone of strong democracies. How are things today, mate? Oh, look, really good, thanks, Jesse. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> uh, good to be here. Well, Looking thank you. Uh, well, as I said, we, um, you know, we've had the chance to speak on a few occasions now, and, and you've been good enough to write contributing columns for a couple of our, our business titles, and that's kind of led to uh, kind of be, becoming telephone buddies to a, a bit of a degree, which led to um, the, the chat about about bringing you on to talk more more broadly about the work that you do in, in different business and political issues that will um, hopefully be of, of interest to some of our listeners. Uh, before we kick off into there, you know, um, Mark, you you work as the CEO for Reputation Management, which effectively helps corporates around these issues. There's going to be a lot of people that don't really know kind of what's happening in the boardroom behind closed doors. Do you want to just kind of give us a peek and a bit of a 101 about, you know, what you do and, and often some of the issues that the, uh, businesses and corporates are dealing with? Yeah, look, it's... That's a really big question. <laughs> um, I'll have to uh, correct you too. I'm a founder, a founder and a director of the business, um, but I, I do advise large corporate corporates. Look, it's it's interesting. Reputation in itself is an interesting field. Um, at, at the core of reputation is trust, um, and if you don't have trust, you can't build reputation. So, trust in itself is is built around what people say, what corporations say, what governments say, what anyone says. Um, and if people are out there espousing different things and people don't trust what they say, then you know, your reputation is not going to go forward. Why is reputation important? Um, so the layer above reputation is the license to be able to do things. In other words, if people don't trust what you say, you don't have a reputation. If you don't have a reputation, then your license to be able to get on and operate and, and do the things that you want um, your bandwidth is cut back significantly. So from a board and a, a CEO point of view and a large corporate point of view, um, you know, when you've got an organisation that's got tens of thousands of people spread around the globe, operating in multiple different jurisdictions with multiple cultures, with multiple laws and regulations, um, you have to have something at the core that is important that holds all that together, which is basically the ethics upon which you do things. Um, you know, people call it corporate culture, uh, but it's, it's more than corporate culture. That still seems like quite a big minefield for, for people that might not work within the space that, that kind of are trying to understand what you do. Do you, um, do you have those any sort of practical example? Out. I'm those, sorry? Those closest to me ask me what I do as well. Yeah. Uh, so it's not unusual. Look, and, and there's a really good reason for that because what we do does not actually bubble up to the public. In other words, we don't, um, we don't go around and, and yell from the rafters what we do. That's not how you manage reputation. A lot about managing reputation is what doesn't get out there as much as what gets out there. A lot of people sit back and say, oh, you're just PR. And it's like, well, no, we're not PR. 
Uh, PR is the is is the positive promotion of goods, services, people, and so on and so forth. Now we do some of that work, um, but what it's about is sitting back and saying, okay, look, you have an issue that's confronting you that's on the table right now. How you manage that issue with your key stakeholders and how you engage with those stakeholders is going to have a huge impact on the outcome of whether or not that particular issue is managed successfully or not. Now, what can be an issue? An issue can be everything from a, a, a plane crash with which I've managed, um, uh, extortions, uh, right through to actually getting a project off the ground and, and navigating that project successfully through the various uh, approval stages to get it to, to its final um, final successful outcome. Uh, so it, it, it actually weaves its way through every aspect of the way that you do business. And at the core of reputation, you know, is, is as I mentioned, it's, it's trust. Um, and trust is being your word. Now, as individuals, you know, being your word is very important, but as corporations, it's even more important. Mm. I, I understand, you know, what you're talking about, what you do. And I assume that, that you must sign NDAs when you work with a lot of clients. Is there typically, you know, when you walk into an office or is there a case study that you tend to remember? Like when I think about these sorts of issues, I, I kind of remember, was it five or 10 years ago now about the Volkswagen brake debacle on their cars in the US or was that with Toyota? So similar sort of uh, examples that, that, that you talk about within your own circles of saying like, hey, had, had this been managed from the start, you know, it, it wouldn't have led to your yeah. share price falling well, off a cliff. It's, what, yeah, what, you're, <laughs> what you're alluding to is is the fact that it takes a very long time to build up trust and you can blow it up in a day. Mm. Um, you know, are there some classic examples of that? I and mean, then you mentioned one, which was the, you know, the Volkswagen debacle over the, the diesel engine um, and how they falsified data on the uh, the emissions from those motors. And That's a eventually. separate one. That's I forgot yeah. about that one as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that that was huge. I mean, that, that was that was, you know, for want of a better word, you know, you know fraud at a very, very large level. Mm. Um, look, one that comes to mind that gives you a really good example on how to manage reputation or how not to manage reputation was the BP oil spill. Um, yeah, you had a situation there where the MD made two statements which he shouldn't have made. Uh, one was the Gulf like, of Mexico one we're talking about. The Gulf of Mexico one. Yeah, he, he said that, oh, look, it's a very small drop in a very large ocean. Yeah. Um, well, you know, for the local communities that live around that area, it's, it's not a small drop. Um, they were impact, impacted by it for years. They had to do huge cleanups. Uh, the other one, the other thing he said is, oh, I'm going on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I, I can remember we, you know, I worked in a steel company and the uh, two thirds of our steel production came from one facility. Um, we had a major crisis in that facility. They had a slippage in the blast furnace and it had to be turned off. Now, when you're a company and you're facing two thirds of your production suddenly going south and you have contracts to supply steel, uh, you're in a major crisis. Mm. Um, the MD packed his things up and he went down on site. He said, my place is to be down on site uh, at the steelworks to help people, not to get in their way, to help clear the path, to get whatever experts that are necessary to be able to come in and fix this issue. So I was sent out to talk to all the shareholders uh, and engage with all the various parties at the stakeholder engagement level. Uh, and I used to get asked the question, why isn't the MD doing this? And I said, well, because the MD's down at the steelworks and he's actually 
right at the, the heart of the issue and, and assist him where he can. And they said, well, how can he assist? And I said, well, he's a PhD in metallurgy, so that might help. Um, but what he can do is get the right sort of experts on site to, to help the local workforce sort the thing out. And it was sorted out. Um, so, yeah, how you manage these things is, is more important than the actual incident itself. I mean, it was interesting in that particular instance, our share price went off 30% as a result of the uh, blast furnace going down. Uh, we got it back up again and started running. Um, and then it went down another three times <laughs> in, in the next six months. But the share price didn't move. And the reason the share price didn't move in the subsequent events that we had with the blast furnace was because we managed it so well. People, in fact, I had one person who ripped me apart in a particular meeting. He spent, um, this was a large fund manager, he spent 40 odd minutes just ripping into me okay. and, and just going through, you know, this, that, and this, and that, and, you know, and Blue Scope tell me this, and this person tells me that, et cetera, et cetera. And I waited till he's finished, and, you know, fair enough. I waited till he's finished. I said, well, look, I'll tell you what, you find me a person that's operated a blast furnace for 23 years nonstop, of which there are not many. It's the second longest running blast furnace in the world. And yeah, I might sit back and listen to it. Anyway, oh, well, you know, fair point, fair point. Um, so yeah, I dealt directly with this person. Now I met him three months later. And what I didn't realize at the time when I first met him was that he had just purchased a big parcel of shares in the company. I only found that out after the meeting, which explains why he was so angry. But he came up to me three months later and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, oh, I heard the blast furnace went down again, but I know you've got it under control, um, which was interesting because we kept communicating with people. Uh, we went out there in a very proactive manner. I went into all the dealing rooms around uh, Sydney and Melbourne, um, which are the, you know, the two financial centres in Australia, uh, and, and got absolutely smashed by all the dealers. But we just approached it in a very, very honest sort of manner, and they appreciated that. And as a result, uh, the share price, which is probably your daily indicator of trust in a company, uh, went back to where it was pretty, uh, pretty quickly and stayed there. Also interesting that, that you mentioned the, the MD went down on the floor because it's not too often these days about, as you said, the the leader and the business kind of hitting the coalface and running things from, from the ground, which I, I suppose is maybe not something that you deal with as much anymore. Yeah, it is an interesting observation, but I, I, I'm a great believer in the safety school um, and the DuPont safety approach to management, which is what they call felt management. Uh, or felt leadership. So if you work, walk through a manufacturing plant or something like that and you see a piece of paper on the floor, you don't tell one of the workers to pick it up or you don't tell the manager, make sure that that's cleaned up or whatever, you go over and you do it yourself. You go over, you pick up the piece of paper and you put it in the bin. Why? People see you doing that. You're a leader. They notice leader behaviours uh, and they will emulate those sort of behaviours. So if you're a leader, you can't go out there and tell people to do one thing and then do something completely different. You have to actually exhibit the behaviours that you want others to demonstrate. Uh, and felt leadership is a really good way of doing that. And this particular CEO, um, it was a guy called Dr. Bob Ebery, who went on to chair some of Australia's largest companies like West Farmers, um, was, was one of those leaders. Um, he led by example, uh, and he was a very, very good leader as a result. Uh, just because you mentioned the the steel example, I'd be interested to get your 
views at the moment because um, as I mentioned, we do business titles in Australia, Canada, the US and, and have a global investor title. I've been hearing a lot about the issues surrounding COVID and supply and demand. And you had mentioned steel. Timber seems to be another one when we talk about um, areas or, or industries, including residential construction, where the cost of doing a custom build on a home has jumped by you know 50 to 60% in some cases on, on materials. What are you hearing in that space? And, and I assume that you're talking to people. Do you have any idea if, if things will begin to kind of come back down to normal? What, what are you hearing in that space? Oh, look, it, it, it's a great question. And I don't know whether there's a straight answer, to be honest. Um, yeah, we, we're going through a process of disruption you know, that we haven't seen, well, not in my lifetime anyway. Mm. Um, and it will take a lot for things to get back to normality. I mean, all we can do is really point to how things were done in the past. Um, you know, when you look at, uh, take Australia as an example, coming out of World War II, I mean, what a lot of people don't realise about Australia was we were in a depression right up until World War II. And we came out of World War II and, and manufacturing and everything, um, uh, they called it the milk bar economy, went, went forward with a vengeance. Um, you know, there, there's that hypothesis that we're going to come out of this and things are going to open up with a vengeance and things are going to get going again. Um, the other the other thing that we've never experienced before is is the digital disruption that we're going through at the moment at, at all levels of everything we do. Um, I mean, if you look at the concept of 3D and 4D printing and how that's going to be applied in the next 10, 15 years, uh, you've got to start shaking your head and saying, well, the whole balance is going to change. I mean, in the last... 150, 200 years, we've lived in a supply chain world where you, you dug stuff up out of the ground, you added value to it, uh, you put it on a truck or a train, you take it to a distribution centre, the distribution centre then sends it out. We're now looking at the complete reverse. What we're looking at is the ability to take a, a 3D, 4D printer to a site um, and build whatever you need to build at site. Um, they've already started building a few homes in the US using uh, that sort of technology. And as that technology proliferates, it's going to change the whole logistics landscape significantly. Um, so there are so many different mega trends that are happening at the moment uh, anyway. Um, what the new normal looks like is going to be extremely difficult to predict. You're choosing probably a different example than I would, but I remember seeing this a couple of years ago of when 3D printers became uh, readily available for the consumer. And there was a guy online that somebody had shown pictures and he was able to build his own Glock nine millimeter handgun because they're already plastic. Printed one yeah. off, was able to create a gun within an hour for, I assume, a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, look, it's pretty scary. I mean, what, what it'll do... You know, the, the whole digitization process and virtual reality and augmented reality and, and so on and so forth, it, it's going to change things significantly. What The leaders are going to be the people who have the brains, basically, the people mm -hmm. who are good designers, the people who are good engineers, the people who are good at maths. Um, they're going to, to become prominent. I mean, you'll be able to download a set of plans off a off, off the web from somewhere that you've purchased from a particular company, you'll be able to upload those plans into a, into a 4D printer. They'll be able to go on site and they'll be able to do what they need to do. Um, it, it completely changes the game. Even, um, you know, we were, my wife and I were reading about augmented humans um, the other night. I, I don't it, even it, know what that is. 
Well, an augmented human is where they use is this the second uh, life digital, digital technologies to augment their abilities. They've already developed threads that they can put into people's brains that will actually transmit data uh, from your brain directly to a computer. Now, this is yeah, right. pretty scary <laughs> stuff. It is. Um, and, and, you know, augmented limbs. I mean, to a certain extent, it, 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 it's like taking a a uh, semi-robotic limb that they, they they can now develop for for um, people who have lost limbs and things like that, but taking it to a level that that in you know, ten or fifteen years' time will be quite scary. Um, I mean, you may have seen in Sweden, for example, there are six thousand people in Sweden wandering around with chips in them. Um, yeah, once you start connecting the ability to to harness the energy of the brain uh, and take that energy and apply it. Uh, to things that are outside, like your computer and things like that, you, you're in a totally and utterly different realm. So, you know, these things may be 5, 10, 15 years off, but still, that's not that long when you when I've been in the workforce for 40 years. There, there's um, someone I know posted a, a news article, and I think it was published by Wired.com. Now, again, you're talking about how scary this stuff gets, because I, I don't even understand how, I really don't, I, I don't even understand conceptually how this would work, but they were saying, somehow a strand of malware was able to attach itself to a form of DNA to replicate and move on. And again, I don't know anything about that stuff, but that sounds like well beyond sort of traditional sci-fi stuff. And I think we're kind of moving into this yeah. area that that's, you know, I've, I've yeah, spoken that's, about that's, yeah, that's one of the things that, you know, in one of the articles that we were reading the other night, and that's the ability to transfer viruses uh, in the computer sense, into people's brains. Right. Even when you talk about, but I don't, I don't get it. Like it's so, it, it's, it's so above my pay grade that trying to wrap my head around this is, uh, you know. Well, they started, um, they started developing um, organic computers um, about ten years ago. Mm. Um, yeah, they're not at a price where consumers uh, can access them yet, but they will. Um, so, yeah, all, all, all of these things, are, you know, if, if, it's interesting. It's almost like, you know, Hollywood, which, you know, produced movies about this stuff 20 years ago. It's, it's becoming a reality. Soylent Green is people. That's all I can say. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh... yeah, yeah. I, I, I rewatched that. I rewatched that not long ago and I just thought it shook my head. Um, so and we're kind of kind of moving off topic, but it was interesting what you had talked about these issues. When when we talk about how far three D printing is going, I think it's we're we're going to get into these areas now of, of freedom of speech and digital technology that we're talking about. But bringing up the onset of technology, I, I've I've heard you know for, for a few years now how this is going to continue to significantly uh, displace employees, the level of automation. You know, we see it even in our our grocery stores at the moment now with automated checkouts. Do you, and, and this is rather the segue that I'm leading into, this is creating a, a very large movement for the idea of a, what do they call it? A guaranteed living wage of paying people for doing nothing or alternately the fact that more low-skilled work is going to be completely abolished over the next 20, 10 to 20 years. What do you think about that? I, I don't like using the expression low-skilled workers. Um, I, I don't know about that, to be honest. Um, yeah, we, we've been talking about technology 
replacing jobs for for decades and decades and decades and you know they haven't i mean i remember when unemployment was over 10 percent um you know and our unemployment levels are anywhere between three and five percent across a lot of countries in in the more recent times so technology hasn't driven the replacement of jobs what it has done um, is it's changed the type of jobs that people do um, you know, rather than going home for every meal like you know, we used to when I was a child um, or taking a packed lunch to school, everyone eats out. Um, you know, the service industry growth is, is being quite marked because um, you know, people's lifestyles have changed and you, know, you just have to have a look at the growth of all the well-being industries and all the fitness industries and all the service industries that have grown up to service people's demands. So I, I think, you know, it will continue to morph um, moving forward. I don't think there will be massive unemployment as, as people have been uh, suggesting for the last seven, eight decades. Um, but, you know, things will change. Um, you know, the only constant in the world is change. So, you know, we, we should just embrace it, accept it um, and understand it, which I think is probably more important. Um, you know, we've, we've entered a, a very... I wouldn't say scary, but a period where we have to actually sit back and have a look at how technology is determining people's views, how technology is censoring, how technology is cancelling, um, and driving people's conversations. I won't say thoughts because no one can control a thought, but people's conversations down a certain path. Um, that to me is is more dangerous. Um, you know, it's straight out of 1984, um, and if people don't think it's happening, it's happening. Um, I often put up posts on the LinkedIn platform and about the whole cancel culture and so on and so forth. And I have a lot of people come out and attack me, say, you know, it doesn't exist. I've been cancelled. Uh, I've been censored, and yeah, you know, I'm not some international. <laughs> international star or anything um but or, or huge influencer but you know for a a, a technology platform to i, I got cancelled on twitter uh censored on twitter uh, I, I only use twitter to read what's going on and to listen to all the silly conversations um or, or read all the the silly conversations that take place i only have something like 120 followers why would you censor me um, so that that to me is is more of a dark side of you know what, what what's going on out there at the moment. Let's um you're not wrong about that. And you know, I think this was originally where we wanted to take this uh, when we said you know let's chat about this a little bit more publicly. We are experiencing this new form of censorship, and and as you said, um, a lot of people are in complete denial about it now. Where where you. I don't even know when it happened. Was it was it maybe up until about 10 years ago? The idea of having conversations like this and opening up these topics for conversation was supposed to be perceived as the way that we come to some form of mutual understanding or understand where our differences in opinions lie so that we can find common ground. We don't have that anymore. Anything just gets... Um, uh, I don't even know how to term it. It's just hate speech is one term for it. Um, there seems yeah. to be racial undertones with it now with with you know white supremacy there's there's a lot of it's really gone off the ranks where there will be people even listening to this conversation now as we talk about this talking about how we're you know 
dipping our feet into right-wing conspiracies or things along those lines. Yeah, look, it's, yeah, let's, let's, let's de-layer this. Let's peel back the onion on this. Um, I, I started writing a book a couple of years ago around leadership and around the ontology of leadership, not around the seven great skills that it takes to be a leader. In my research, I came across a professor who uh, he was president of Armenia, um, Suskerson, and he said that um, the world's you know, social media has, has taken us from a linear world uh, to a quantum physics world. And he's a quantum physicist, quantum physicist himself, um, which was a really it opened a lot of doors for me in terms of looking at this whole social media thing. Now, I mean, if you go go back 20, 30 years ago, uh, people used to go underground, right? So you had your extreme right, extreme left, and they would have their underground meetings, and you know, everything was hush hush, and the FBI and the CIA used to chase them around, and so on and so forth in America. What you're finding now is through platforms like Twitter, all those underground conversations are suddenly above the surface. So what we're seeing is we're seeing what people really think that used to do it behind closed doors, and they think it's safe doing it on a Twitter mm. platform, which I, I actually find quite amusing. It's like people who think an email, you know, it's okay to send an abusive email um, because it's not verbal. And we communicate in so many different ways these days that any communication, anything you say, anything you write down, anything you do, your observed behavior is how the world actually views you as a person. You know, a lot of people think that, you know, I think I'm this, therefore I am. It's the other way around. You don't exist in the world except by other people's conversations. Mm. So who you really are is not who you think you are. It's what other people think you are. So when you see platforms um, and, and huge debates on Twitter, what you're seeing is, is what was normally the underground conversations above the surface. Now, that has consequences. Uh, and there's a really good stat. 80% of, of, I call them tweets, not tweets. 80% of tweets um, are done by 10% of people. Mm. That tells you something in itself. It's just the, I call it the latte drinking cafe set, just debating with each other in a really derogatory sense. I mean, you'll see journalists write articles that go into major publications, and then you'll see them say the exact opposite on Twitter, thinking that, oh, people don't read Twitter. Mm. I mean, the ridiculousness of it, 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 the naivety of it um, is, is ridiculous. And it comes, you know, when you take it in the context of my original conversation around what reputation is, it's around trust. So when someone sees something written in the media and then sees something that, that, that is on Twitter that's at the opposite, written by the same person, they start to sit there and say, hey, what's going on here? And then people start to realise that the major forms of traditional information that we used to rely on, you can no longer rely on those. Mm. Um, hence, people's trust in, in media as an institution is, is just dwindling and dwindling rapidly, which in itself, you know, in, in a cybernetic sense, just raises the, the conversations that take place on Twitter to a higher level of prominence. Um, where it ends up, who knows? But um, we're in this ridiculous period where the people who have control, i.e. the technology platforms, 
over those conversations are now sitting them, setting themselves up as adjudicators of those conversations. Mm. Um, that's what I find really problematic in all of this. They're the, the judge and jury on conversations now. Well, you know, you can't have defamation protections on the one hand and then censor on the other, you know, which is the big debate that's taking place in, in the US. Um, if you're going to have protections, then you should respect people's right right to say what they damn well think. Mm. Um, you know, back in, in, in Sydney's history, you know, we had the domain in, in Sydney where people used to go on a Sunday with the... <laughs> With their wooden carton and stand on their wooden Our carton. Soapboxes, yeah. Yeah, the soapboxes, yeah. yeah. And you had, you know, and the crowds used to go to the domain and they used to debate things. Um, you know, what what we're finding is that, you know, who who has a right to tell me how to think? No one. Mm. Um, you know, who has the right to tell me what what I can and can't say? No one. I'm not harming anyone. Um, I'm not out there to to start a movement to stop people from from doing things or start other people from doing things. I'm just expressing views, debating and asking questions. And if we don't ask questions, we don't get to the best solutions. So this era that we're entering of, of censorship and, and you know, the worst form of it, cancellation, um, is very, very 1984. You had a different perspective on it. I think that this is one of the areas, I guess, where as a traditional liberal my values are beginning to evolve or adapt on this because you know if again if you went back 10 years i would have said in a business you know uh, baking the gay wedding cake it is up to the business mm -hmm. order to decide which customers they want I, I think that's that's more than fine this now is is taking on the complexities of of digital platforms with things like Facebook and Twitter, where they control all of the conversation and, and shut you out from the ways that you're able to communicate. I think, uh, you know, at, at one point in time, we were talking about a small business owner who operated one business where you had still had a choice of multiple operators to go to, where you could say, hey, you know, I, I find their judgment bigoted, surely you will bake me a cake. And they would go, of course you would. And you had multiple options for that. But these days, between the platforms of Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, you know, Microsoft, which is taking over your, you've got what, no more than five options where generally one post on any one of those will get you kicked off all five. Do you not think that this is creating a different conversation of the fact that, that they are entirely omitting you from the conversation entirely based on, you know, your viewpoints? Yeah, it's, look, I come from Scott, they just don't have the right, in my view. You know, who, who says that their views truth and mine's not mm. what is truth i mean if you want to get into the the philosophy of this truth is what someone thinks truth is so truth in itself doesn't exist so you know truth is not like a chair it's not like a table it's not something that, that you know truth is is something that you give meaning to who's to say that the meaning that they put on something is is you know right or wrong uh, and my meaning is 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 not, um, and yeah, we 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 need to debate at that level to get to the right sort of answers. What worries me is that when you slice out, um, you know, if 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 you look at the world in an ontological sense, right? We know what we know. We know what we don't know. We know what others know, um, and 
we're, chuck, we're actually cutting out a huge part of that conversation through censorship and cancellation. Now, in chopping out that part of the conversation, the overall bounds of knowledge doesn't get bigger. It actually gets smaller. So it, 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 could, it could have a, 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 a deliberate negative impact on the growth of society over the, over the medium term. It's pretty serious stuff as far as I'm concerned, but it's interesting. Whenever I raise these sort of things on LinkedIn and stuff like that, I have a whole pile of people pile on and say, oh, you know, uh, don't you think that, you know, right-wing conspiracy theorists, you know, you know, do you agree with them and so on and so forth? Well, yeah, I don't have to agree with them, mm. but I can listen to what they say um, just as much as I listen to what the left-wing conspiracy theorists yeah. say. And who says that they're conspiracy theorists? They're just people with views. Um, when people start expressing views that actually potentially harm the well-being of another human being, that's a different matter. And we have laws and we have regulations to deal with those sort of things. I think, you know, where I wanted to take this, I don't know how much you know about that. And again, I, I don't know about the app, but there was another social media platform that came out called Parler, which was said it based yep. itself around free speech. And immediately yep. once it came out again, if I'm on Reddit or any of the other social media, the attack was clearly there a white supremacist Nazi platform because they will allow people to have these conversations. But it seemed that the platform seemed to have a certain amount of uptake at the moment. And it seemed that there was, again, I'm not agreeing or, or, or quantifying the, the, their point of view, but I'm just saying at least there was a platform, I guess, where people could have open dialogue. But then effectively to, to exacerbate that idea of, of censorship and cutting down, it turns out not too much longer after the fact, any platform uh, that was part of, you know, Apple or um, the the Google, what is it, Play Store, effectively dropped it. So again, another level of censorship of not even allowing you access to that platform. And I think that's that's kind of what I'm getting at by this. It's like there seems to be alternatives popping up, and big tech is still trying to do its damnedest to find a way to make sure that no no conversations that don't coincide with the approved narrative are allowed to happen. I think the parlor example is 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 a is a good one. You've you've struck on a good one there. I mean, yeah, you can't have this conversation around parlor without having the conversation around 2020 election in the US mm. uh, and Trump and so on and so forth. I mean, there is no doubt that you know Trump put Twitter on the map. Uh, Trump put CNN ratings up, put MSBC's ratings up. Um, CBS's ratings up. Um, well, can I, 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 and I just, sorry, Mark, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no, what, we talk about Trump on Twitter. I, I just, I find it I, just absolutely outstanding that they've decided that, you know, they're going to censor his tweets and the day that he is, the day after he is no longer formally the president, they shut down his account. But I remember going back 10 years ago, the only way that you could effectively get hold of, of, ISIS information was via Twitter. Like I'm just astounded at, at the judgment calls between, you know, allowing the uh, the Chinese Communist Party to Photoshop images about Australian soldiers in battle, which gets away on Twitter. ISIS out there being able to promote and put videos on their message, and then yeah. someone like Trump being censored, who is the leader of the free world for or was for better or for worse. 
Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Yeah, the 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 whole Trump thing was was and still is quite fascinating. And uh, I think people will look back on history and and look at it through many many different lenses. Um, yeah, there there was no doubt that Trump was divisive, but he wasn't necessarily divisive because he was a divisive individual. Mm. He was divisive because he called things out. Um, and, um, yeah, he was his own worst enemy. Um, yeah, attacking people. I, I don't like attacking individuals. I, I think attacking individuals is quite disrespectful. Um, and I say that to people who start attacking me personally on, on my various social media platforms. I said, look, attacking people at a personal level is very small-minded. Um, I don't do it. Um, sometimes I'm tempted to do it, but I don't because I, sure. think it's, it's I, I feel that too. <laughs> um, and yeah, so Trump, by doing that, detracted from you know, some of the things that he did that were actually quite good. It overshadowed um, a lot of his policy. It, it overshadowed because, you know, it's, yeah, and, and there are two different standards. There are, you know, a standard for people on the left side of politics is different to the standard for the people on the right side of politics. But I mean, let's, yeah, let's to me, talk about that. That's a really interesting point that you brought up. I, I, I don't want to get away with it. That's, that's a very interesting statement. Can I ask you to elaborate on that? Well, You know, I mean, Obama could do no wrong, mm. which is fine, you know. Um, you know, you've, you've, but since he's left politics, you know, all of a sudden there's systematic racism in the US. If there was systematic racism in the US, you wouldn't have had a black president. Mm. Uh, you wouldn't have black members sitting on the Supreme Court. You wouldn't have black members of Congress. Well, they certainly um, didn't talk about the crossover of voters from Obama to Trump as well. Yeah, so it's it's um, yet if someone of the right talks of those sort of things, they get slammed. Um, I mean, it's and yeah, the right slams the left too. I mean, don't get me wrong; it's not it's not one way traffic. Um, you know, all you have to do is <laughs> I love doing this. It's is is you line up CNN on one side and you you line up Fox News on the other and just watch them go at each other. Yes. I mean, get over yourselves. Seriously, I mean, who cares what the other network says? I mean, the other network says what it says. But I think the thing I find interesting, though, is since Trump's left, CNN's demise and the ratings has been meteoric. Mm -hmm. um, the opposite way, <laughs> media coming to Earth yes. rather than going through space. Whereas, you know, uh, so the other major networks, they all come down as well. But... The left seems to be getting more damaged than the right. Um, and, you know, I'll give you the classic example. Um, what's his name, Abarachi? The, 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 the lawyer who represented Stormy Daniels, who has now gone to jail. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I forget the correct pronunciation of his mm. name. But, I mean... Yeah, on the left-wing networks, he was a folk hero. He was a potential presidential candidate. He was the one who had Trump on the run. Um, I mean, it, it, it was just, you just sat there and listened and just went, oh. Now, you won't hear a peep out of them. 
mm. about him um, since he's been been jailed. Um, you know, Jesse Smollett is another example. Um, so the way that things get treated, um, and probably the classic example, is the way that Trump's children got treated versus the way Hunter Biden's been treated. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I had someone have a real go at me because I asked questions over the Hunter Biden laptop. Um, and I said, well, let, let's put the laptop aside for a moment. you got a head of state uh, being the vice president who was responsible for a country whose son gets appointed to an energy company, gets paid whatever it was, $60,000, $80,000 a month to be on the board of that energy company, can't speak the local language has no experience in energy. He himself goes on the media and says, well, I guess I was appointed because my name's Biden. An investigation opens up into the company, you know, Burisma that he was a director of. Biden is at a foreign affairs um, luncheon and brags about the fact that he rang the president of the Ukraine and said, sack the special prosecutor, otherwise you won't get your billion dollar guarantees. Uh, you know, if, if, if that was in Australia, <laughs> I tell you what, if that was in New South Wales, there would be massive investigations by the Independent Commission Against Corruption and, and there would be charges. Um, yet nothing happened. Trump has a conversation <laughs> with the president of the Ukraine, which they released the transcript, yes. which started out as quid pro quo, but they couldn't have that hold. Then it was an inappropriate conversation. Um, and, yeah, he pays the price. Um, you, you know, if, if you yeah, had to go to your point, if you're going to, yeah, we have to rely as citizens, as members of the public, on our trust to come back to the reputation thing, on our trust in our institutions. That means our government as one arm. It means our courts as another arm, it means our media as another arm, and so on and so forth. When, you, when they don't play fair, in inverted commas, in other words, balanced, and it's out of balance, um, you've got an issue. So do you think then, uh, just based on that, do you believe that there is um, a media bias left or right? Oh, look, there's, there's I forget who put it together, but someone put a media map together. I think it was the uh, John Solomon from Just the News that categorized uh, different media outlets. I forget who did it, but look, there's media on both sides. Hmm. So, you know, is there an overall media bias? Um, I can only go off my own experience back in the eighties um, when I worked for a head of state here in Australia. Um, I went to a, a uh, pub, um, you know, hotel for people in the international audience, but we went to a pub. Um, and that pub was the pub where the drinkers from a Murdoch publication went. And at the time I was working for a, um, uh, a person called Nick Griner, who ended up becoming Premier of a state in New South Wales here in I Australia. I want to say you're down at the Star or something along those lines down in Surrey Hills. Oh, I'm not saying which one it was. <laughs> not far from there. Um, but when they found I was introduced by a particular journalist, uh, this was in 1986, 
85. Um, and when they figured out who I was, the journalists formed a circle around me and started spitting on me um, and calling me names that are related to the uh, female anatomy. Um, now, I was all of 24, 23, 24. <laughs> I was scared shitless. Plus, I was just, I was just dumbfounded. I was in such a state of shock of being spat on by journalists. Um, so is there bias? Well, clearly at that stage there was. Is there bias today? There's bias in everything today. Mm. Uh, is it more left-leaning than right-leaning? It's hard to say. Um, and the re- this is my belief why it's hard to say, my reasoning for that. Yeah, I can watch Sky News here in Australia, um, and it's very right of centre. Uh, I can watch Fairfax Press. It's very left of centre. Um, so who I choose to watch um, is, is really up to me. So I can get my feed either from the right or left, and I get my feed from both sides because I have to, because that's the realm that I work in. What do you think? I want to open up a, a few things here as we get a little bit deeper into this conversation. So before before we talk about that, in, in your consulting work then, I assume conversations must come up with corporates about potentially where they do their PR and media spend based on left or right news and how that might impact their business. Do conversations like that ever come up of saying if they're going to run a, a TVC or television commercial at your sort of level before they hit an ad agency of saying, uh, you know, we, we really shouldn't have it on this channel or there because of blowback to these sorts of things. No. Okay. No. Um, look, what I find, unless you're going to run a social agenda, um, look, what I find is that um, organisations, you know, they're capitalist Um and, you know, I'm, I'm a great believer in capitalism. Um, so what they'll do is they'll work out which are the best uh, distribution channels, because that's essentially all they are, to get to their particular audiences, to get a particular message across or to sell a particular item. Um, if it's left-leaning, it's left-leaning. If it's right-leaning, it's right-leaning. Now, if I was selling guns, um, would I go to a left, a left magazine to sell guns? Probably not. Um, would I go to underground magazines to sell guns? Yeah, it depends dubious. whether or not you're prepared dubious. To, <laughs> yeah, well, it depends whether you're prepared to do it legally. Yes. Um, but you know, I'm 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 gonna, you know, in America, for example, if I was gonna sell guns, I'd be looking for patriot outlets, wouldn't I, to do the distribution. Yeah, so yeah, there's purely a capitalist motive in that regard in terms of of, of an organization's product. Now, having said that. Um, yeah, you, you, you look at the product itself and say to yourself, you know, an electric car, you're not going to sell an electric car and a rev head mag initially. Sure. You will have a time because electric cars actually go faster than V8s from 0 to 100. Um, I just don't think the rev head market's got its head around that yet in this country anyway. Um, so we're going to move down that path. But if you have an organization, I'll give you a classic example. Um, an organization, North Face, uh, the brand, was yeah, okay. advertising, okay. yeah, they were advertising about how they were going to take on the oil companies. Um, you know, because we can no longer have oil and so on, which is their right to do. 
the oil the oil industry is 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 the industry that feeds their raw materials. Mm. Um, now, if I was sitting there advising that organisation, I'd be sitting there going, "Wait a minute, take a couple of steps back. You're going to have to go and find natural based products." Um, and yeah, yeah, what what replaces petroleum? Effectively, what, what, what's going to replace petroleum mm. um, to to make your your products, you know? Gore-Tex and stuff like that and proof and, and so on and so forth, waterproof, windproof, you know, rated 25,000 by 25,000 and so on and so forth. So, you know, there is a level of hypocrisy, um, you know, that's, that's starting to develop to while organisations try and push themselves towards a particular agenda. Um, now, I'm not dishonouring what, they want to do North Face in terms of their view towards the oil industry, that's fine. But wow, if I was an oil executive, in fact, I think an oil executive, yeah, there was. It was a CEO of an oil company that put an ad together saying, I find this fascinating because, and then just went through every one of their products and just said, you know, source oil company, source oil company, and just and just mm -hmm. blew the whole argument apart. You're um uh, you're going to be a good one to ask about this because this is this is a convert a question that I have a lot of the time. That again, depending upon who I ask, it's like from the moment they open their mouth, there's there's bias in the viewpoint that they have. When I watched it, when I watch the news frequently, apparently we're already there. If we just switch to renewables tomorrow, we could live on a renewables economy. I think you and I both agree that that's that's not plausible at this point in time, and it requires a lot of. Uh, subsidy in underwriting to even get us to that point but similar to the issues of climate change or greenhouse gases or whatever you want to term it from the age of about 10 i've been exposed to this at school along with the concept of peak oil which again has is supposed to have happened three or four times you know i'm not, i'll be 40 at the end of this year <laughs> so oil. like yep. every decade yep. it's supposed to happen yep. how um again I, I i don't want to turn this into a left versus right thing but how much longer do you believe that we are renewable on oil? You've already touched that we can't replace it. Can we, do we have an exit strategy for getting it out of airplanes, tanker vehicles and, and other automobiles, which from my understanding is really the issue of- it, it, Look, it's a really, really good question. And it shouldn't be left or right, to be honest. Um, yeah, we, we need to look at technologies that are actually going to be kind to the planet. I'm not saying kinder, I'm saying kind to the planet. Um, you know, for the human race to survive in the longer term, we, we have to maintain a biodiversity, bioflora and biofauna and all that sort of stuff on the planet. There's no doubt about that. I find that, you know, when you, when you start reading articles about uh, plastics getting into the food chain through salmon in the Arctic, you, you start to sit back and go, whoa, that's, that's mm. concerning, uh, nanoplastics. Um, you know, we, we are going to transition energy, whether we like it or not. Um, what that looks like by 2050, who knows? Um, does it need to happen? Yeah, even the oil companies recognise that it needs to happen. Peak oil is an interesting concept because what peak oil doesn't take into consideration is technology. Um, you know, we can drill deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper these days. Refine better and better. And all of that sort of stuff. Um, so, 
you know, is there going to be a transition? Can you switch off the old and switch on the new? No, you can't. I mean, it, it would be devastating for that to happen. Um, and yeah, again, yeah, there are some elements of this debate that are um, uh, hypocritical. I was listening to um, the deputy leader, is he deputy? No, Chris Bowen from the Labor Party here in Australia, okay. and he was talking about, um, you know, that we have to shut down the coal industry because, um, you know, the world's moving away from coal. Uh, you know, what he failed to mention, and, you know, these are just facts. Um, Power plants, uh, China's emerging opening, economies. China's opening up. China's opening up. Thank mm. you, coal power station once a week. Um, so, you know, let's, it's like all of these debates. Um, you know, is it a good thing to, to have a healthier environment? I think everyone, it's an obvious answer. Yes. You know, is there climate change? It's an obvious answer. Yes. Is there a greenhouse? Yes. I mean, when I studied, you know, I've got a geography major, which these days would be an environmental science major and an economics major. Um, and, you know, back then, when we were looking at the whole climate side of things, it was that we needed to have a greenhouse effect because we were sliding into a mini ice age. So, yeah, it, it's a very, very complex debate. Um, you know, I've, I've got a client that has done a major pivot into the area of sustainability, and I think it's a, it's a fantastic strategy for this organisation. Um, why? Because I think it'll actually grow the organisation. 70% um, of their business was oil and gas just two and a half years ago, it's now under 50%. Um, and yeah, the, the, the growth opportunity out of sustainability is far greater than the growth opportunity out of oil and gas. But have they jettisoned oil and gas? No, because you know, the way that we're going to get to a better environment is to also do better at the way that we do our traditional industries as well. So it's in, in industrial processes, it's in input management, industrial process management, as well as looking at renewable technologies. We have to look at the full spectrum to be able to get to the, the sort of targets that they're talking about. I mean, they talk, to get to zero net carbon by 2050 requires $2 trillion a year US spend in um, renewable technologies, $2 trillion a year from now to 2050 oh look i've always had the opinion i don't really know what australia has to do with this until we deal with china india and the us i mean we're just as far as i'm concerned it's um it's all for show until we kind of figure out what those guys are doing and we know what they're doing they're, they're building coal power plants and and even in in areas like china and they're being smarter about it at least building nuclear which is really i uh, i'm blown away that this isn't this this option hasn't uh, you know, been moved to 10 yeah. for uptake. Well, it, it's interesting because I've been involved in the energy sector for 30 years now. Um, yeah, we had a technology out of Japan uh, called fluoridized bed technology back in the early 90s. Fluoridized bed technology is where they heat up sand and you put your municipal waste in that sand and mix it about, steam comes off and you create energy. If you drive into Tokyo, you'll see all these little buildings that look like commercial offices. They're in fact incinerators. Uh, they meet the, the, they did at the time, it's probably changed now, it's even a tougher standard I would assume, but the 17th BIMP standard, which is one nanogram per cubic meter of um, dioxide. Um, mind you, when you look at uh, pouring petrol or petrol station, that's around 10,000 particles per cubic meter. Uh, so, yeah, very, very high standard uh, in terms of pollution control. We tried to get that into 
into uh, there was an incinerator in Sydney that took the the rubbish from five different municipalities. We we were going to convert it for free. For free. Um, you know what they do with all that rubbish now? They shut down the incinerator. They said no. They shut down the incinerator. They now truck it down to the southern side of Sydney. I mean, the extra carbon dioxide it produces. You, you just sit there and scratch your head because it's it's just so counterintuitive in terms of what they've done. Well, my understanding is that recycling isn't even happening now. There was, was it the landline or 730 report last year where they effectively found that they are just taking all the recycled goods and shipping yep. them off to landfill anyway? It's not, there's no recycling yep. taking place apparently. No, no. Um, well, there, there is some. To say there's none, I don't think is correct. There is some. Um, but, you know, we all feel good because we split our rubbish at home. Yes. We put our plastics in one area. We put our paper in another. You know, we, we, we go to the extent at home of putting uh, soft plastic in another and taking that back to the, the supermarket. We're now going to get another set of bins. So you have your standard rubbish bin. This is in, in where I live. Standard rubbish bin, your glass and cans and your paper. Now they're going to have a, uh, a food bin. So we've now got four different types of bins and it all ends up, not all of it, but a great percentage of it ends up. In exactly. Back together. Yes. <laughs> and, into yeah, like you, you just, and then you have different trucks come up and pick up the different lots of rubbish. I mean, I, I, was, yes. I was saying to someone the other day, um, I can remember as a kid, one of my jobs was taking out the garbage right? twice a week, Monday and Thursday. I still remember it well, but it was a, it was a, you know, a family of five and it was a standard garbage bin. Uh, yeah, a standard garbage yeah, right. bin, twice right. a week. Now you have these huge bins, yes, which you fill up. <laughs> you fill up the cardboard one, you fill up the plastic one, you fill up the the, the food waste and general waste one, and you sort of sit there and say, "Where is all this rubbish coming from?" Mm. So there are things that we need to do. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, you know, you and I are talking. We're both in Australia. I'm sure we're going to have overseas listeners. You know, this kind of ties in with Trump again. Uh, it, it's very, very particular to Australia. It relates to the U.S. and the fact that China is is at some point going to become the global superpower. Before before I move into that, I'm sure you would have had these conversations. Um, there's a lot of debate around this. It's going to happen in 10 to 15 to 20 years. It's not going to happen in our lifetime because of the defense systems of the U.S. What are you hearing in, in terms of the superpower war between these two nations? Six of one and a half dozen of the other. I think you've, uh, I think you've outlined it quite well. I mean, I was just listening to a, a China expert the other day saying, you know, things aren't uh, as good as it seems within China in terms of its economy. Hmm. Um, I've been hearing that for, I, I can remember 20 years ago when, people said that China was going to get to steel producing capacity of 500 million tons um, in, in the space of a few years. And at that stage, they were at 100 million tons. And I sort of shook my head and said, no, that's like building 20 of our largest steel works a year. Well, they did it. Um, well, didn't they build the Wuhan hospital in a period of like six days or something along those lines? Yeah. And, and you know, what cost is what I say, but... Um, it, it, look, I, I, I was in China, uh, not last, was in China, no, last year, year before, 2019, I went to Shanghai and Beijing. Um, yeah, it's quite incredible what they're, what they're doing up there. There's no doubt about it. Um, 
uh, you know, I went and visited one of the largest hydro energy plants and uh, it, it, the scale was just amazing. But what was even more amazing to me is they built it in 1970. So this wasn't new. Um, so when you see things like that and the scale upon which they do things, it is breathtaking. And you, you know, you've got to take your hat off to them in terms of how far they've progressed and how many people they've brought out of poverty. So tick, 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 tick. The issue you've got is you've, you've had a regime change in the last five years. Um, and you know, what we're seeing now uh, uh, is a different strategy and it's quite a hostile one when it comes to the West. Can you just give um, us yeah, a 101 on that? You, you said so. Well, yeah, they're basically the Communist they're, Party, but, they're, but you're, you're saying. Yeah, the CCP. I mean, yeah, they've basically come out and said they want to dominate the world. But you've and said that there's that been mean? a strategy change. You said there was a, uh, something's changed. In the yeah, well, yeah, belt, the Belt and Road Initiative, for example, which at face value looked really good. When you start delving behind the scenes um, and looking at how they were doing it, and they were building ports. Um, in Pacific nations that can take warships. <laughs> yes, and I'm also told that they... Not, not, not small freighter ships. And, my understanding and of it is, is emerging economies where they can uh, build it at high rates of interest and effectively land grab after that too. Yeah, well, that, that, that's the other thing. It's, it's and, you know, we, we don't know what the commercial terms are, but, you know, what, what I've heard and read is it's around 10% interest. Hmm. Uh, Japan did the same sort of thing, but they used to do it at somewhere between 1% and 3% interest. Um, Pacific Island nations don't have that sort of money. Uh, they don't have the money to, to pay the interest. I think it's really interesting that there was a... Uh, uh, one of the ministers from the Solomons required brain surgery and China offered to take him into China and pay for it. And he said, no, mm. uh, he ended up going to Taiwan. I mean, that, that's an indication to me that you know, not, not everything is, is absolutely as it should be. Mm. Um, so look, it's anyone's guess. I mean, I, I, I deal with people having worked with a company that was 60% owned by a company called State Grid, which is the fifth largest corporation in the world. And only recently coming off that company just over a year ago, um, yeah, the, the 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 Chinese executives and the Chinese people that, that were involved in that company were, were yeah, great people. They were really really nice people, um, but it's a political regime that has become more. You've got to think it's become more authoritarian in the last five years, and that that is an issue. Um, yeah, we know that, um, you know, the big difference between America and the big difference between authoritarian regimes is authoritarian regimes are prepared to sacrifice citizens mm -hmm. uh, to get to an end goal, whereas um, uh, you know, countries like America take a different view towards that uh, because they have a different view towards the relationship that they have with their citizens. Um, so, you know, when they talk about, you know, world dominance, you know, what does that mean? Um, what does it mean? You know, okay, from an economic point of view, you could argue that they are pretty close to world dominance anyway. Um, but what does it mean from a political point of view? Uh, because in China, what they say economically and politically are intertwined. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. Well, that's, that's my question to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, yeah, I've, I've, I've sat and I've listened to a lot of people. Um, and... Um, 
I guess so. Yeah, it, 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 ethically, do do we have do we have problems with the fact because you know I think when when Trump was president, a, a lot of us said, "Hey, he's talking with North Korea. Maybe this is a good thing if they can establish some trade." Which again, you know, we've talked about the benefits of capitalism of taking people out of poverty. But with China and its relationship with Australia, you know, we desperately need them for trade, and at the same time, they. They're going the opposite way. Instead of getting more freedom, we're getting less with you know Hong Kong and these Uyghur Muslims. How are there any ethical implications that, that we should be thinking of when you know when we we are we're bolstering their strength by our necessity for trade with them? Capitalism doesn't have ethics. Mm. Yeah, let's let's be really clear here. Um, it's people that have ethics or otherwise. That's why it's a really difficult question to answer, because if you ask that question to two different people, you're going to get two different answers. Um, if it's in my interest, you know, let, let's take the tech platforms, for example, the Googles and, and so on and so forth. You know, they want to do business in China because it's such a big market. We don't know what conversations take place behind the scenes that has them determine who to censor, for example, and who not to censor. Mm. Um, you know, it's 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 guesswork. Um, you know, we're we're going into areas of moral hazard. Um, uh, communism has no ethics either, by the way. So when I say capitalism has no ethics, neither does communism. <laughs> it's just, they're just terms and meanings that are put onto the way that people um, manage things. So, you know, are there ethical issues from the point of view of how a nation treats its citizens? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I hear a lot of criticism about the United States and from within. That's great. That's fantastic. That shows you that America is, in fact, alive. Um, the ability to self-criticize, the ability to, 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 to go onto the streets and have heated debate and arguments and, you know, little flashpoints here and there is a fantastic thing. That shows that you know, the, 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 that America's working. Mm. It's when it doesn't happen like that that you're going to be concerned. You know, it's like you don't see that in China. Um, you know, I, again, I, I come back to one of my initial comments, which was around you can't tell me how to think. Um, you know, I'm, I am born free. Everyone is born free. We are born with the ability to think for ourselves. Um, and, you know, that's something that's given to us by, you know, whether you believe in God or whether you believe in, in whatever, in creation or whatever, um, that's given to us. Um, as we go through life, it's slowly taken away. <laughs> mm. America is the only country that I'm aware of in the world that has that freedom enshrined in documents. Um, I've got to say, the forefathers in America have got to be some of the brightest people on the planet. They put in so many checks and balances into the American system um, that uh, it, it's very, very difficult to tip it one way or the other. Very difficult. Having said that, um, you know, I think they're going through a, a, a fairly critical phase at the moment. Um, you, know, you don't have that in China. You don't have that in even in Australia. We have a constitution, but it doesn't define what is meant by freedom. I was going to ask uh, you about that. It's it's a really good point that you bring up because one of the other conversations that we have, you know, we, we 
probably talk amongst sort of similar groups is has been the concept of Australia or, or even Canada where I'm originally from or or the UK developing a bill of rights similar to America to enshrine freedom of speech and the argument is we already have freedom of speech but how would you define the differences between the two and and are they are they roughly the same it's interesting because you know, I, I, I love looking at America. Um, you know, I've worked in America, as you know. Uh, I, you know, I'm starting to understand why Americans, you know, there's a very strong Christian ethic in America. Um, you know, because they say that those rights to freedom were given to them by God, in inverted commas. Mm. Um, you know, God, guns and... Uh, liberty um and you know when you think a bit you know more deeply into that and you peel back the onion everyone on the planet is given that right um when they're born the right to be free um what america's as i said their forefathers did saying well you know we've been you know, we had that right, and that right's been given to us by the mere fact that we've been born, i.e. God gave us that right because that's what they believed in, in, in you know. How you then get, take Australia, how you then get a bunch of people together to write a Bill of Rights mm. based on what principle? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people look upon the patriots, as they call them in the US, as absolute nutters. They look upon them as, as right-wing conspiracy theorists because they say that we were created under God. Um, I think people miss the point. I'm not a religious person, but I get the point that what they're saying is that we are born free and we have that right. The government does not give you the right to freedom. Now, if you get a bunch of people sitting down in a committee to write a Bill of Rights, it's going to be we're giving you these rights, not that these rights are inalienable and you have them from birth. It's not the government that gives you those rights. And that's a, that's a pretty darn major distinction. And I think it's why people get so passionate about it in the US, because it's not your right as a government official or as someone else to take my right that I was given in their terms by God. You didn't give it to me. Whereas if you do a Bill of Rights, it's almost like the Bill of Rights, as defined by the government, gives you your freedom. It, look, it's a very, it, it, you would need some very mature, very good thinkers to put it together, whether it would survive the political process and get through to a referendum and all that sort of stuff is a completely and utterly different matter. Um, at the right time, and you've got to remember that, you know, the US was born at a particular time when they had their, you know, they, you know, they freed themselves from the Brits. At a revolution. Yeah, time, um, time matters, doesn't it? In, in yeah, they had a catalyst to, to, to do this. Look, we're, we're free from those people. We are free. You know, we're being given that right, and then they took it, peeled it back and said, we're free from the time of birth. Dif different context, different lens, different conversation. Um, which is why when people say we should have a Bill of Rights, I'd sort of like sit there and say, well, I don't need someone else telling me what my freedoms are because as far as I'm concerned, I am free. 
Um, and, you know, you have laws and regulations and things like that that might regulate my behaviour. You know, I'm not free to pick up a knife and go and stab someone. Well, I am, actually. I can go and pick up a knife and, you know, go and stab someone, but I'm going to end up in jail. There are consequences, nor would I want to do it. Um, but I'm allowed to think those thoughts and dismiss them too. Yeah. Um, that's the difference. Okay. Uh, look, I want to start wrapping up today and, and get yep. towards the end of this, but, uh, you know, he, he's, he's been peppered through our conversation constantly and that's yeah. Trump. It's a name that doesn't go away. He's still going to be here. I know that you've had some dealings with him prior to being a president. I don't necessarily want to get into that. I just want to get, uh, you know, through the interpretation of all this information that you get, what does the American landscape sort of look like, um, when we get to 2024 and, and, what I mean by that, again, this last election, worse than, uh, I guess, or, or more convoluted than Trump defeating Hillary when they thought he was going to get smashed, is the fact that I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Joe Biden uh, was had the highest vote count ever for a president in any election ever, but that still puts Trump as number two with the record turnout of this election. What does that actually mean for kind of where we're headed in, in 2024, in your opinion? Oh, that's a big question. Um, it is, you know, Trump, as I said, you know, did divide a nation. And the reason he divided a nation was because, you know, there were a huge number of people who said, you know what, it's okay to think the way we think. Uh, and then there was the other side of the population that went, this guy's dangerous. Um, you know, orange man and so on and so forth. And, mm. you know, there, there was, you know, scandal upon scandal uh, thrown at Trump and all of them, you know, were found to be wanting in inverted commas. Um, you know, impeached twice and the only president in history to be impeached twice. But you've got to say that was pretty darn political. Um, so... Yeah, if he wanted to run again, I, I suspect he would be given the platform to run again. Um, so it's really up to him. He's holding his cards very close to his chest. Um, yeah, to understand politics in America, or you, you've got to understand who Trump is, and you talked about dealings that I've, I've had with Trump. Now, I worked with an organisation that built the Soho building, for example, the Trump Tower, which is now named something else. Um you know, you grow up in the construction industry in New York, and it's a tough industry. Um, you know, people say that, you know, the mafia gangs are gone. They haven't gone. They've just gone more underground, and they work in, in legitimate industries, and they organize mm. things behind the scenes. Um, you know, to work in that sort of industry, you've got to be tough. Um, to put up buildings at the rate that Trump put up buildings, you have to be tough. Um, you know, in America, something that people in other countries like Australia don't realise, they don't have things like workers' comp and things like that. Everything's based on litigation. Um, you know, you sue people. Um, you have legal arguments. You take them to court. I mean, that's just par for the course in the US. Trump grew up in that. He got schooled in that. Um, you know, one of the things that amazed me over the whole Trump era is how much they threw at him and how hard he just kept coming back. Um, and, you know, I, I go back to the days of, of when I got a bit of an insight into him 
um, you know, out of the construction game um, in New York. So um, if he wants to stand again, he'll stand again. Uh, will he divide the country if he stands again? Of course he will. Um, you know, he goes on very... I mean, the guy's got a, a sense of humour and the, the issue is that the people on the left don't like his sense of humour and people on the right think it's fantastic. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's going to divide. Um, I don't believe in personal attacks. He does the personal attack thing well. Um, and it's one of the things that gives him an edge because it makes people feel like they're part of the club, which is what they want. They want an identity. They want an identity that takes on authority. They want an identity that takes on the Washington swamp. And, and yeah, when people say the Washington swamp doesn't exist, I sit there and go, what planet are you on? Um, you know, I've had to deal with Washington myself. And yeah, I can tell you it's a swamp. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I just shake my head, you know, in, in Australia, you know, you go through, you know, we have these pecuniary interests where, where people have to write down what assets they hold and stuff like that. When I see the assets that some of the, the um, US politicians have, um, it doesn't make any it doesn't make any sense that they it doesn't they make get, any sense. They get, about a, they get a salary yeah. of 160 grand a year, and after five years, they've got a multi-million dollar portfolio. It it's, yeah, it, yeah. It, 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 uh, it just doesn't make sense. And you 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 sort of shake your head and go, you know, but that's America. Um, America, look, I love Westerns because that's America. America is still the Wild West. Um, the, you know, the forefathers wrote the, the Constitution that way uh, to pit people against people. Why? Because it puts checks and balances in place. Um, and what came out of that, the most powerful nation in the world. Um, you know, I, I hear all the commentators in America on the right side, the Patriots, oh, you know, it's the greatest country in history. Well, that's debatable. Um, but it is, you know, a phenomenal, phenomenal country. Um, you know, and it, and it grew out of, you know, Europe's been around a lot longer than the US has. Uh, and the US went to world dominance pretty darn quickly in world history standards. Um, the other thing that's interesting to, to, you know, when you talk geopolitics, China was the number one economy in the world for 1,800 of the last 2,000 years, which is a little known fact that people realise, and basically because of the number of people in the country. Um, uh, so, you know, for them, and if you think of their mindset knowing that, it's like, well, America's the young kid on the block. They've come along and China knows how to play the long game. Mm. So to go back to the geopolitical conversation around China, you've also got to take that into context as well. Uh, so Mark, uh, that's all I've got for you today. If, if, if you've enjoyed and you, you've stuck with us through all this, uh, you can read more of Mark's thoughts as a contributing columnist uh, in the Australian business executive. Mark, before we wrap up, um, why don't, why don't we just give you a platform to talk a little bit about your organization and who you help and what you actually do for them? Yeah, look, basically, um, you know, this organization has been going 11 years now. This is one of the businesses that I run. <laughs> um, what we do is we just, you know, we go in behind the scenes and, and we help people sort through matters. Uh, we help people get into a, a proactive stance in the way that they manage their reputation. Um, and, you know, we assist them through that process. I mean, I've had some clients on my books now for eight years. Um, so once they come on board, they tend to stick with us because, you know, we deliver results for them. Excellent. Uh, well, I'm happy to do this again if you are at some point down the road. 
Oh, look, I'd love to. And uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's, it's great having a, a chat and throwing all these things out there and, and seeing where they land. And hopefully there'll be a lot of uh, criticism as, as well as praise <laughs> on these sort of conversations because we have to have them. So you know, I really appreciate your time. Cheers. No problem. And yours as well. Thanks very much, Mark. We'll speak soon. Yes, thank you. This episode is brought to you by Romulus IT, offering fast, affordable remote support for common computer problems, including troubleshooting, health checks, virus removal, and software support. Visit RomulusIT.com to get your computer back on track.